Speaking of death, uh, the coronavirus is sweeping America. Uh, yeah, especially your neck of the woods, huh? Yeah, so we've already had, what, like, nine, ten deaths and uh, a lot of illnesses. Uh, my family's a little bit sick right now, so I'm a little bit on edge about the whole thing. Yeah, but your family's always sick. Like, we're talking about that every single week. It's just a new the- strain of sickness that you're dealing with here. This is the one time I haven't caught it yet, so I'm a little bit suspicious of it. <laughs> what, you think it's like burrowing deep inside <laughs> you or something like that? It's waiting for the moment to strike? It has to be something else because I'm not catching it yet. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's picking up a bit. It, even over here in Oregon, I know there's at least one case that was in Hillsboro, which is about an hour away from here. Uh, nothing near as close as that you're getting right now where you've got, you know, it's like the epicenter of it here for the United States and Seattle. Once I heard that an Amazon worker got it, I was like, oh, there goes the whole city, right? Yeah, <laughs> practically the country if it gets out, but much yeah. more than that. I mean, if it's Amazon, that's, I mean, it's go- it already is global, so uh, it's affected most countries, and uh, what we do in the time of a grave illness, uh, we thought we would play a game. Well, you thought we'd uh, play a game. I have no idea what game you're going to propose here for me, but uh, um, I'll, it's I'll entertain our- coronavirus game (laughs) (laughs) so we found out early this morning that uh no time to die would be postponed right um into november right which throws a big old wrench in our uh bond series that we've had going for what like a year now leading up to this bro has put in so much time and effort and energy into you know chronicling every single bond film leading right up to the release it was planned out to meet No Time to Die on release, and now there's this giant delay. It's like, and and there's no way we can, like, pad or anything. We only had, like, one or two movies left to go, right? Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) it was just Quantum and and, uh, Spectre. Oh, no, I guess three, because he had Quantum, Skyfall, and Spectre were the only ones left that he had to do. So we just had to do the Craig run, and then we were pretty much good on Bond. And then right before we had this massive coronavirus, which uh, I wanted to play a game and figure out which uh, movies we feel like it will affect here on the oncoming schedule. It's, um, a, it's a fun game. I can, I can dig okay. that. <laughs> so uh, I'll throw it out, and you'll either say quarantine or safe, I guess. Uh, okay, we'll decide cool. on the fate of these movies. <laughs> um, the first one, one of the movies I'm most excited to talk about, but also embargoed on, is First Cow, which is coming out the next couple of weeks. I mean, it's already coming out. You already saw it in people, so yeah. it's it's safe as far as I'm concerned. I feel like uh, on the back end we have like a, a Chinese immigrant story, which might might not be the you know topic of du jour, but uh, um, I feel like it's so small we don't have to worry about these like mini releases, do we? No, I think all kind of small releases. It's really only going to affect uh, you know big blockbuster releases, and I think specifically as you or someone else mentioned to me, it was. Uh, specifically releases in China, where China is going to be mm. a big box office market, because that's obviously where the the actual epicenter of the virus is coming from, and where it's hitting the most is in China, is where it originated from. So, um, for First Cow, we say safe. Our, our first victor of our uh, annual coronavirus game. Uh, we'd like to thank A24. Um, <laughs> what else do we have? We have a uh, there's a Chinese actor in that, but uh, I think I'm more worried about uh, Mulan, which is full of Chinese actors and a Chinese story down to its heart. Um, that's going to be hugely impacted, I imagine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more caught on this one because this one's coming out 
very soon. It's supposed to come out at the end of this month, and uh, I don't know if it's going to get delayed. The thing is with Bond is that there is such a push from the Bond fan base mm. to delay it, Yeah, and I don't see the same from Mulan, especially considering the backlash the film has already received from American audiences with the lead actress uh, coming out in support of mainland China and the whole Hong Kong mm-hmm. issue going on, so... That market is almost strictly China, and if they're not calling for it to be delayed, then I'm not seeing it happening, because it is, it's right around the corner here, so I think it's going to be safe for release schedule. Um, How do we feel about The Hunt, which was released, uh, not (laughs) released last year because of Trump, and now is caught in another possible web of deception as we slip into corona season? I mean, I think at this point, like, it's lost... Just release it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's lost the steam, the momentum that it had, building up with all of that by delaying it. Like, I don't even know if people are going to go see it now. They're trying to market it around, like, the film you weren't allowed to see or whatever it is. But right. it's, it's not drawing much attention at the moment, so I think it's going to just come out and flop and go away, and, and nobody's going to care. Uh, props to the first movie that hands out hazmat suits as, like, a... A gimmick, a marketing to get gimmick. The theater. That'd be great. Yeah, come, you know, we'll suit you up in a hazmat. <laughs> um, like, I I think that one's probably safe just because of what already happened. It's kind of just like release it. it doesn't matter what happens. So. Yeah, it's, it's, like I said, it's kind of gonna flop onto release and then just as quickly flop out because when films are delayed like that for so long, they just lose any momentum they have and any interest. Okay, so um, Mulan we think is safe, and First Cow we're saying is safe, Bond obviously not safe, and um, what are we looking at, A Quiet Place Part 2, that seems like a potentially dangerous release where we're looking at like a, you know, like a viral infection and a horror movie, and it's obviously a blockbuster and audience pleaser, so uh, I, I have questions about that, maybe a couple months. Maybe, you know, you might be onto something more with this one here. I suspect with The Quiet Place 2 it has a greater chance of delay than some of these others here. But again, I, I, you know, point to the evidence of the Bond having the support for delay. Yeah. And I don't know if that's going to be the same with any other. There's no Quiet Place fan base like there is a Bond fan base. There's There's a worrying thing where it slipped into our, like countrywide paranoia where no time to die is just not the name you want to go to during an outbreak i suppose yeah it's a it's it's a kind of fitting name in that respect um but yeah i don't know if the same will transfer to a quiet place i'm gonna i'm gonna stand more in the middle i'm gonna straddle the line on this one like i'm gonna say it's safe at the moment but very well could see it getting quarantined um, Peter Rabbit 2, The Runaway, I say cancel it anyway. Yeah. We don't need that movie. Are you going to review that one for us, this for the site here? Probably. Yeah, Will you, probably. Are, ugh, I can't believe you're going to do that to yourself. Did, did you, didn't you see the first one and, like, despised it? I did, I did. I, I'm not a big James Corden guy, and I'm not a big, uh... You like guy cats? Likes, you, you I like, like cats, Yeah, sure. you like cats. Yeah, I can't describe that um i think uh what about trolls world tour i think that's dangerous because it's a world tour it's not it's not even regional we're exposing corona to the children <laughs> yeah i guess the the children are the you know one of the more concerning demographics for the yeah. coronavirus the children and the elderly they're the most susceptible to uh death from the virus <laughs> here so this is such a horrible game <laughs> keep Keep your kids away from the movie theaters, and specifically the Trolls World Tour, because they've been everywhere. 
they're going everywhere, so they're bound to have it. And we have uh, the new mutants, which probably just cancel it whole cloth also. I mean, I think the mutants, the, the mutagen is the virus, if you think about right. it. This is this is really a covert way to spread the virus through, <laughs> you know, uh, the, the movies that they're going to come out of the screen and infect all of us here, all of us who have been interested in this. <laughs> this is a hell of a Disney marketing campaign releasing coronavirus right now. Yeah. But no, I mean, New Mutants is kind of in the same boat, but maybe even more so than The Hunt, where it's been so mm-hmm. dead on arrival, like for years, like it's almost like people forgot this was a thing. They're like, oh, this was something they actually shot i thought it was just like a rumor thing and it got canceled it's been delayed like five or six times who's gonna see Um, this i don't i don't really have uh i don't really have high prospects for this anyway i mean i don't think it's going to make any splash Uh, i i feel like it won't be a viral uh viral hit hit. yeah are we getting into the puns now is that is that what we evolved into (laughs) i think so um I don't really have many others that I'm worried about. There's one called Radioactive coming out. That sounds like a haunting thing to put out. Oh, uh, yeah. It kind of ties in, I guess, with that. Um, there's there's really nothing else I'm worried about for the summer. Like, I feel like, of course, Top Gun just has to come out. They they already pushed it like a few days earlier, so it's not interfering with In the Heights. So that's a risky move already. Uh, let's see what Halloween Kills does when we get to uh, the horror movie season. I mean, they can't delay, I think, Halloween Kills. You know, it's in October. That's the time to release it. If you put it out in November, you're going to have the issue, like, what, around the same time that the first, or the 13th or whatever, how many Halloween we're going to count mm. this one as it came out. Like, you had Suspiria come out in November, and it just, like, totally crashed because nobody wants to go see a horror movie in November. They're all hyped up to see them in October. I guess my last suspicion is that Godzilla will probably be affected in November and pushed to like a February thing. It's you know it's probably for the better. Any movie with lots of CGI, take this opportunity to delay it now so you can work on it some more. Yeah, so it looks perfect. I agree. Until your CG doesn't resemble a virus itself. <laughs> anyway, well, that was a fun game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little morbid, um, but fun. Yeah. Uh, speaking of morbid and fun, uh, The Invisible Man just came out. And I just keep setting these up for you, don't I? These are great transitions. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, this one was uh, an interesting one. I think that was probably the first interesting movie for the year to come out, aside from now First Cow, which you're raving about. Yeah, but as far which as... isn't out yet, so yeah, this yeah. is probably the first, right? Yeah, the first that's that's out. And I know when I saw the trailer, I think I talked about it on the podcast before when you had me watch it, uh, it, it seemed mm. very interesting, an interesting twist. Not at all like the H.D. Wells novel or the Universal film or anything like that. It's tangentially related at best, but it looked very interesting. I'm very glad they went this route. Um, Elizabeth Moss keeps attracting these hugely uh, upsetting roles. Uh, someone needs to give her like a slight rom-com or something to settle her down. Um, I'm really enjoying seeing her screen presence, and she really holds this movie up. Uh, it has like a really good horror basis for like the first half of it. I really wish it stuck that landing. Uh, Leigh Winnell, he did a Upgrade. Uh, the, the director of Upgrade. He made this for like seven million, and unlike uh, the Mummy, which is like a hundred twenty-three million production, this has already made more money than that. So a uh, huge box office success, obviously, and uh, uh, you could do a lot with the budget on horror movies. Seven million is a crazy low amount for 
films nowadays, just in general, even yeah. for low budget films, that's pretty low. Uh, so, you know, kudos, and I think the returns on that are going to be really great because it seems to be the, the popular film of discussion right now. Uh, that seems to be the whole Blumhouse thing, right? Like, yeah. make a bunch of horror movies at a low bet, and, you know, some of them will be successes, and they'll pay for the ones that aren't. Yeah, uh, and I think that model has worked out for them very clearly, you know, ever since at least uh, Get Out had, you know, the, the smash success it did on a tiny budget. And so I hope to see more of these because I think in general we're tired of uh, giant, bloated blockbusters, you know, overtaking the mainstream <laughs> at the moment. And we want to go back to a more kind of intimate and, you know, kind of a low-key stakes kind of films, you know. I think we're kind of over, like, the quiet, quiet boom horror movies and that there's some stuff that's, you know, moving forward in a positive direction. We're, we're dealing with more societal horror now in a way that has, like, a textual reading within our everyday lives, which is, like, a huge improvement right now. And I love where horror movies are going. If I, nothing else is working, horror is. I think in general we're seeing that... Uh that increase in socially conscious films in our, you know, yeah. uh, culture, not only um, here, but, you know, in other uh, international films as well. I kind of looked at this, uh, I got a piece coming up, I don't want to plug it too much right now, but mm -hmm. this idea of the, we're seeing an uptick in socially conscious and commentative films, you know, with like the big successes of Us, Joker, Parasite last year, Ready or Not, you know, similar vein as well, where we're all, we're, we're not afraid to talk about the problems in our society now yeah. in in our films because you know we are we are seeing a a backlash against you know current administrations and uh policies that are being enacted and, and the general uh outcry of, of the people here uh against uh, a lot of important right movies now. and yeah and we're seeing and that we reflected in, in our election art. year yeah and I think that's that's really what brings it out. If you compare the kind of films that are dominating discussion from the beginning of the last decade to the latter half, I think you'll see a stark difference in, you know, the kind of films that are being greenlit and are being successful. We start to see, like, an arc after maybe, like, Moonlight, where things could be made and things are going to get awarded, and uh, the Academy, of course, has become more socially conscious, so... Uh, we'll get those award season movies that also want to say something and have to, kind of. I don't think an unconscious film could ever win again. Yeah. I think it has to say something. Even slight stuff we saw, like, winning... Like, I would say, like, the last good number of uh, Best Picture winners, from Moonlight onwards, even Shape of Water, yeah. even, even Green Book, to a degree, has social commentary to it. That's what Green it. Book's about, yeah. Yeah, and I it mean, has that in there. That's it's the premise. Yeah, problematic or whatever aside, it's still a film that's, you know, being socially conscious and discussing things up front and forward. And, of course, we see that all culminate in the win of Parasite this last year, which is wonderful. You know, I think that's... <laughs> I a, mean, Green Book, is, Green Book is, like, the Biden form of, like, socially conscious, right? <laughs> like, we're, like, half conservative and, you know, we're going halfway and saying it would be nice if we weren't racist, but... Uh, uh, Parasite or Moonlight or Shape of Water, that's more like our, you know, that's our Bernie bro kind of social consciousness. <laughs> well, uh, what else do we have uh, in the box office? I didn't want to get too off topic there. Well, speaking of like socially conscious films that are uh, talking about more of a societal impact, we had Trials of Gabriel Fernandez coming on Netflix, which was a really heavy doc. I had to watch the whole thing, obviously. Um, it goes within, like, the serial mold of following one court case and uh, figuring out um, 
you know, what's going on with the court system and why are we fell? Why are we, sorry, <laughs> it gets me emotional just thinking about it. Why are we failing young children who are being abused and why are social workers not stepping out to help them? So a very heavy watch for me, especially with the child. Uh, right. I, I mean, she, she sat by me sick and I, I, I just sat there the whole time just thinking what kind of horrible person just could keep accumulating this abuse and nobody says anything. There is a lot of that problem, I think. Uh, shoot, I think in general, just we're we're looking more and more uh, disparagingly at you know the problems in our world today, and wondering why we are still dealing with the same problems we were 50, 60, 80 years ago. You know, and it just seems like we've only fixed them to a slight degree. Like it's only you know we're we're doing the very bare minimum to solve problems. So the more. Uh, you know, and again, I've thought about this in working in last piece, and we see more with uh, the socially conscious films that we keep seeing lately. Is that the more we bring this to the forefront and we put it as a subject of our popular art and entertainment, the more people are going to you know perk up and listen because they have no other choice. They have they can't turn away anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think people are interested in ideas that are a lot bigger right now, like. We want to see intersexual fem- uh, feminism and uh, gender and identity movies, and we want to see ones that address social norms and try to solve something larger in the world. And um, it doesn't always take like a, a Sarah Koenig format for that to work, but I think that's the best format we currently have for documentary and podcast work. So that's what we're seeing a lot of. Yeah, it's good to see more of that coming out. I'm you know glad to see the you know the world embracing this uh this openness a lot more and uh you know the i guess the conservative mentality trying to shy away from those that are dying out more and more every day and that's good yeah absolutely i mean the generation will pass right it's it's a temporary thing as bad as it feels at any moment right um what i'm also not okay with uh the movie called i am not okay with this <laughs> Were you okay with the movie, or was the movie not okay, or were you okay with it? Yes. <laughs> I'm not okay with that transition. <laughs> uh, what we've Look, realized I- is that the only children actors that are still working are the ones from Strange Things and uh, It Chapter 1 and 2. Th- those seem to be the ones that we're hooking on to, I guess. I don't know. Who, who is in this? I don't know anything about this one. Uh, Sophia Lillis, who we just saw in Gretel and Hansel a couple right, weeks ago. Right, right. Uh, She's the main player, and she does this strange things thing where she has a a kind of paranormal ability to adjust things on the fly when she's met with trauma. And uh, the boy, uh, Wyatt Olaf, I think... uh, He's from It as well. Yeah, he plays another guy named Stanley. I think he was also a Stanley in It. Yeah, he was. He was, he was. (laughs) (laughs) They're not even changing the character names anymore. (laughs) And uh, I believe this is either from producers of It or Stranger Things, but it might as well be both because I can't tell the difference. I mean, you kind of—it's good to see them having success and getting some mainstream popularity, and hope that leads to a you know a new generation of uh, you know young film actors um, who can kind of you know carve out a new idea, but. You don't, you don't want to see them get like typecast in these all the time as well. It's nice to see them yeah. have success, but you don't want it to be repetitious. I'd rather people go see Gretel and Hansel, but I was surprised this was another one I sat down and watched in one sitting, and I, it felt like it was, you know, it's like the, 
the time of a short movie. I mean, they're like 28-minute episodes or whatever, and it goes like nothing. So yeah, uh, maybe watch it if you just want a distraction for a night. What's it about? Can you can you kind of pitch it to me? Uh, basically, what I've said, that it's kind of like Carrie meets Strange Things, where a girl on the verge of puberty gets this new power. It's based on a comic series that's kind of spun off Stranger Things in its format, and um, it, it's about her meeting this boy and what she's going to do in her relationship, how it feels at school. Uh, uh, just another romp, like Strange Things and It. There's not much new value here. Oh. I don't have, like, an extra thing to sell you. <laughs> Well, you know, it's nice to see anyway and kind of get a feel of what is going on. I see it's another Netflix property, which is yeah. always uh, interesting. And and I like this idea still that of, of Netflix continuing to produce these short series that are longer than films or, or you're at, least, at least bisected in, you know, different ways. And then, you know, versus whole films or continuous TV series. It's nice that we have this kind of new format that's being more or less explored. I don't think it'll take off like i hope it would to kind of create you know create its own new medium but it is nice to continue to see you know more short series you know being developed i like that these brands are starting to emerge as even larger brands where they have things like strange things and end of the fucking world and i think uh, i'm not okay with this actually takes place in that universe so if anyone's seen that show watch this too but uh um, we're also seeing like Amazon, like they have the Hunter show with Al Pacino, which is just a, the same as their series, the boys, like they have the same format. So we're starting to see templates arise out of, uh, um, these streamer ownerships of these properties. So they're you know, starting to have their own fingerprint. You know, I hate to say that the like overabundance of ads I've seen for the Hunter's TV show <laughs> and the, and the bizarrely conflicting tones they, they send, you know, has almost got me enough intrigued to check it out, but also just Al Pacino and Nazi hunting. But I also mm. saw that, you know, there was big backlash from, I don't know, Nazi sympathizers who were upset oh. <laughs> about the show, <laughs> which is... I like know, the... There's a scene in the bowling alley where the Nazi guy's asking him what shoe he wants, and, and he keeps yelling at him, nine, nine, nine. I thought that was pretty funny. But, uh, <laughs> that sounds like a dumb joke, but the kind of dumb joke that you would like. <laughs> yeah. It's the perfect kind of dumb joke that fits well in this universe, in that situation. The Nine guy is such an asshole. I think his name is Nines or something, too. Jesus. Which is, you know, obvious Nazi joke. Yeah. Well, again, I think that's another byproduct of, you know, socially conscious media we're seeing. And I am all for more Nazi bashing movies and shows. We need more of that. We had a, a small budget release called a Swallow. Um that had uh, Haley Bennett in it as a woman who becomes pregnant and starts ingesting a lot of dangerous objects. Um, uh, that's odd. <laughs> yeah. She starts with, like, well, it's about, like, men having control of women's bodies, and she becomes pregnant and reads in one of her books, do something every day that surprises you. So she eats a fucking marble. <laughs> it, <laughs> and then she eats a thumbtack, and it keeps escalating. Um, that, that is odd yeah it gets very self-harmy which is uh probably i don't know i think it's a real hard watch and not the kind of body horror i like honestly uh yeah i know you put up a review for me to edit last night but i'm a lazy person and i've not gotten to it yet so maybe you yeah. can give me a, a quick rundown of kind of your expectations here before we put it up on the site 
um, it's from um, it's kind of from the lineage of I'd say like mother like uh, she plays very close to a Jennifer Lawrence type where she's like living and breathing the soul of the house house and she yeah she has that porcelain uh, looking face where she, she, she acts like, like a doll yeah she looks like Jennifer Lawrence when I when I first pulled it up here I'm like is that Jennifer Lawrence and I'm like oh it's not but mm-hmm. it's yeah it looks looks like it, it definitely it reminds me of that. Yeah, she looks and acts like her in Mother, and uh, I don't like any of the men characters in it. I feel like they're very flat and obvious, and uh, the whole thing is just about their over-control of her situation and her taking it back. I think all of the Hunter stuff, that's her name, Hunter, all of her stuff is very well done, and I don't like anyone else around her. So, Do you, do you get any kind of, uh, like with Mother, I imagine, it has kind of a Rosemary's Baby vibe to it? That's what I would imagine, anyway. Um, this has a lot less of that, which I think is kind of what I don't like. I don't want to spoil it too much, but it doesn't end up going down the suggested path that you think it does. Um, it doesn't take that to the full extent of it. It becomes more of a social harm that her husband has done to her. He reveals that she has this eating disorder during a party, and everyone approaches her about it. It's obvious they all know, and it's kind of like in Mother when everyone keeps coming into the house, and she doesn't want them there, and everything falls out at the party. Uh Without the great support of, like, an Oscar Isaac. Mm-hmm. Wait. But, uh, uh, was Oscar sorry? Isaac in that? Was Oscar Isaac in that movie? He was, right? In Mother? I don't, I don't think. I think that was Javier Bardem. Just the husband. Okay. And we'll Ed, edit this. Ed Harris, Michelle Pfeiffer, Tom Gleason's in That's what I meant. Javier Bardem. <laughs> yeah. They're very easy to confuse the two. They're, they look exactly the same. Thank you for that fix. <laughs> I'll leave this in. That's <laughs> so what I'm here for. Unlike that, though, I feel like the husband falls very flat, and he feels like a CW husband, very TV archetypy and boring. Well, maybe um, it was Oscar Isaac instead. Yeah. Um, if you're not tired of socially conscious movies, how about uh, Emma, uh, the feminist uh, Jane Austen take that is kind of like... Uh, I think it's a sequel to Clueless from the 90s. Like a literal sequel? Um, yeah, this new writer, Jane Austen, decided to make a, a sequel to the 90s movie Clueless. Uh, no, You know, I've, I've heard of uh, Jane Austen a bit. She must be really, like, popular and up-and-coming. You know, I hope that she gets uh, more work and, you know, more attention like this. Because it's nice to see fresh female talent in, in Hollywood today. You know, we need to support more of that. I mean, if she were that good, wouldn't she have a Netflix series, too? That's true. I guess she's not uh, all that great. Uh, let me Call me back when Jane Austen gets a series of her own. I know. Um, it's it's too bad women are being held back from those opportunities, but uh, it's just too bad. Um, I, I really like this uh, take on Emma in uh, some very shallow ways. Uh, it's very pastel-colored and... Uh, it feels like everyone's like dancing into their roles like the men are twirling and they're coming up with like clever bon mots and jokes that sound like uh, things people only say in books um it is kind of casually funny too um it feels like it's very flowery and uh frothy uh, i took my mom to it uh, the first screener i took her to so that was a fun experience that's good. Uh, yeah, I believe this one kind of ties into our topic today and largely why you wanted to pick the film that we chose to for this week. Um, 
because this is kind of a uh, emblematic of a an increase in like period films like a uh, 18th century yeah. you know kind of period films that we have lately especially with like little women coming out at the end of last year and uh particularly i know you you kind of connected this one to uh the, the feature this week which we'll get to in more comparisons there but i would like to hear more about what you did and didn't like about uh emma because we, we do have your review on the site and it's it's yeah. like faint praise overall yeah, I think that's right. It's breezy, it's charming, and we have um, what's her name, Anna Taylor Joy, doing her first like a, uh, you know, a lot of actresses just do this kind of work, but uh, it's nice to see her step out of something like The Witch and you know come through as something that a family could go see and that a uh, women could actually settle with and create her identity as a feminine actress that's going to get other roles. So uh, I'm glad she's not being typecast, but she does have like a striking an interesting face that isn't is a little bit atypical for this um i was surprised on twitter when she saw when she said that uh she didn't feel she was handsome clever or rich enough to play emma and i was like a that that must make women feel pretty bad because i think she's pretty gorgeous and i think it works well in here well, you know everyone is uh you know especially at least the big stars they're a little bit in disbelief of the the praise they receive everywhere and they tend to be denying yeah. or self-conscious of that that because the the praise they ha- get seems uh unequal to their actual beauty even if you can address it in like an objective manner and say i am beautiful like you still notice flaws where everyone you know might treat you as this kind of divine goddess i mean we could look at it from like a pauline kale sense of like objective criticism where someone is beautiful and they're obviously beautiful on screen like um okay she's obviously good on the screen uh she doesn't have any faults looking at her but i mean that doesn't mean someone has confidence in themselves right well and Um, and again i think it's usually that backlash things like even the biggest you know uh, hottest stars of you know the old classic Hollywood days they were you know constantly self-conscious and it takes a lot of effort to keep up that you know on-screen beauty it's not natural by any means I mean I mean I don't know like if natural, I, but. <laughs> like I don't know if my skin's clear like a, a once a week or you know right. like I uh, I can't imagine having to keep up appearances and to keep like weight down and trying to like fit into these old uh, costumes and make them all flattering but uh i think i think it's a lot of production in this movie that makes it work we have a a former oscar award winner um alexandra byron who's doing the costume design and it's clear that it's like very period elegant and uh, in common with today's movie obviously it has like the costuming and the um more colorful uh, different take on um, an old style, but it also has like the tortured uh, violins and the um, just like a, a feeling of difference where it feels like it's a quirky and it's almost making fun of being a period costume movie. I think that's the the big thing as well that kind of ties in with our our featured film is that self awareness and that you know that sharp jabbing at the idea of melodramatic period dramas and the kind of you yeah. know the conservative fantasy of returning to this time that was very posh and you know uptight and you know and i think that's really one of the strengths of our feature and i don't know i feel like we keep talking around it should do you have any more thoughts on emma or should we just transition i, 
I'd say I thought Little Women did that in a very interesting way that everyone was calling punk, and I think I'd agree with that label because it took an old idea and then it asserted modern feminism that's about like ownership of body and owning your own story on top of an old feminist story, and it's kind of reclaiming what women have in history and saying that's valuable and we need that now. So uh, going back and having Autumn DeWilde like kind of premiere with this... Uh, I mean, not like technically premiere, but having like a big coming a, out a breakout for, success. For them as a director. Yeah, yeah, a breakout success with this, uh, Emma. It, I think it's an important thing. It's important to look at women reclaiming old stories as modern uh, parables of feminism. So uh, that's kind of what I'm looking at. Yeah, and would you say the, the same applies to our feature film? Yeah, so today we're covering The Favorite. Uh, maybe it's one of my favorite films of 2018. I'd say a top three for sure. So the favorite is your favorite of your favorite decade, maybe? or not decade. <laughs> cut that, cut that let's out. Say, <laughs> let's say it's my favorite of 2018, just to make it fun and easy. I think it was, like, you You were praising it up and down uh, during that year, I remember. And as usual, with your favorites, would not shut up about it. <laughs> which is which is great praise. <laughs> have to. No, it's, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. You know, I think it's great to hear your passion about all the time here on the podcast. And uh, finally, you've harassed me into watching it for this uh, this week, which I did yeah. greatly enjoy, and it certainly lived up to the the great expectation you set of it and everyone else around me. Generally, it was a, it was a top favorite of 2018 in general, and I know we were all a little bit disappointed when Green Book took the prize undeservedly yeah. from favorites. This is prob I would say this is probably the most worthy winner that they put up there in 2018 because uh, of course we didn't have uh, the Orson Welles picture right. and we didn't have Lynn Ramsey recognized. So I mean if you're not going to do those, I feel like the favorite was such an obvious best movie. Like as far as for like a uh, mainstream, I guess, quote unquote, uh, you know, films that year yeah. then yeah this one seems to be kind of top of the pile yeah i think um at least we got the olivia coleman uh win with a beautiful speech well i think that's a, a big factor as well with the film and i mentioned here during the emma discussion is that the, the favorite is very biting and funny throughout you know and it, and it starts out that way with the the good like pratfall in the mud from emma stone in her introduction scene there yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it's, uh, I mean, it's broken into the chapters, and when the first chapter of a movie is like, what is it, like the mud stinks or something, you know, it's going to be kind of a funny, different kind of biting take on yeah. old times. I think, and that was for sure my favorite aspect of the film, watching it, was I loved the crassness of the film, and, you know, how it wasn't afraid to be crude in its humor as a direct opposition to the, the pomposity of the... Um, you know, Victorian style there, and the, the, and the yeah. expectations we have for period dramas like this, and that's why I say it's so biting and, and cutting, uh, because it is almost satirical in that way. And you always say that you don't care about the problems of the rich, so I really no. want to get this one <laughs> forward to you, because it's it's so different, because of course, uh, uh, Sarah uh, isn't rich, I mean, she has a, you know, um, she's going from she was, like, traded away at the card table by her parents or something, right? That's right, a, that's the thing, is that her, her dad, like, trades her or loses her in a bet they mention in dialogue or something like that. And so she ends up, you know, getting her way here and working as a servant, even though she comes from some nobility, I believe. Yeah. Um, she is still part of the Churchill family, I believe, which would... 
Am I getting the names right? I or believe, is she I, part of the... No, I believe she's... One of them is Churchill. I don't remember exactly because it's it's very isolated. Like, it's a historical yeah. adaptation, which is another interesting facet to it. But it's also very isolated from that in that the events, I think, happening, obviously, the writing, it's not 100% true. You know, it's not really a, a biopic, you know, by normal standards. Um, but it is based on very real events and real people. And, you know, stuff that went on during the time. And so, like I said there, you know, her character is of a certain ability, but she has fallen to the bottom of the ladder and is now kind of, you know, clawing her way up and, you know, taking, you know, the, you know, places where she can. I had just gotten the name wrong. It's Abigail is the one that I was referencing. Yeah, Sarah, of course, is Rachel Weisz's character. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, it is that she is coming back in and we... It's nice to have this like vision that represents kind of the audience's view of these characters, right? Because we're not coming from nobility and we just want to observe it from the outside. And Abigail represents uh, such a different kind of person. She comes in covered in the mud and they're like, uh, uh, what are you going to do here? And she's like, maybe you could give me a job. I could play with the children. And she does her little rawr, cute monster rawr. girl. Yeah, that's the fight. Well, because <laughs> they accuse her, they're basically like, oh, you be, you're like a monster, you know, and they do yeah. that. And then she plays off with it and she embraces her uh, kind of unconventional, you know, disposition there. And, and, and I think the big reason why something like The Favorite works for me versus the, the quote unquote snootier, you know, period dramas or whatever that revolve around, you know, more, you know, uh, uh, aristocratic issues i guess i'll say is that mm. it's it's very much not about you know the that aspect so much and about the the problems of the the rich it's a very more intimate story that you have going on there between all the characters who are fighting amongst each other it's a character battle yeah. and while it's also a battle for power and then I think the other very fascinating aspect is the battle of the war going on in the background of all of this that's being, <laughs> you know, hotly debated between uh, the different political parties that they have, one of whom is represented by Nicholas Holt's character, who yeah. is very fun. I liked him a whole lot in the movie as well. I like that. Uh, I like the difference here because it is a very gender difference. Uh, the men say something, they have like one line in the movie that's like, yeah, but the men must be pretty, right? Like, <laughs> Nicholas Holt is always uh, scrambling and doing the most funny things. I feel like uh, he's a hidden fourth star in the movie. Uh, Nicholas Holt really shows up and they are like powdered and the men have so much wake makeup on and, oh, um, you know, Abigail approaches one of them and like wipes it off. <laughs> She's like, I bet you're handsome under this. And there's a lot of contrast because they, they make sure to highlight sequences with uh, Olivia Coleman's character, Queen Anne in, in the, you know, the, the unfortunate situation of her sickness, the, I believe it's mm -hmm. the gout that she's dealing with at the time or, you know, some other kind of disease. Yeah, she has some. I think some kind of gout in her leg, and it's and so and she's lost pretty much full use of one leg. There's long stretches of the film where she's not made up at all, and she's very you know conventional looking. I guess uh, I would say I don't know. You, you see the flaws in her character and her beauty, and obviously you know you can tell that Coleman did gain uh, considerable weight for the role as well to properly you know portray the character, and so it's a nice contrast to the you know more made up and. Um, kind of disguised look of the time that you see especially in the men i mean men do that all the time but uh, for a woman to put on like 40 pounds for a bolt for a role and 
for it to be a queen who you know calls herself a badger it's it, <laughs> and that plays into like the poster design like these characters all have um animalistic elements like you'll see that she has like her uh cape that's very badger like and uh just abigail like flattened out on top of it and her legs kind of spread like very unwomanly and untoward and um it's a lot about like composition and not holding up like suggested gender roles and how different that used to be that women were you know it was matriarchal and that a woman would pretty much send the men like pawns into the other countries to fight their wars well again i think that's a the strength of the film and how it addresses its characters and you know the conversations between people is that it, it grounds it in a reality that i think the period dramas aren't often given with their inherent yeah. romanticism <laughs> in that we we play up the the bougie aspects of you know the the aristocracy and um you know specifically I mean, in the the dialogue and the poise of the characters here like i said the the crassness and the the very you know direct form of language they have with one another you know and and the attitude that many of the characters display make it feel more relatable to us in a modern way and it feels like you know, this is actually probably a more accurate representation of the time, it almost seems like, because there's not just, like, a one-note display of the characters, and that they always have to be these perfectly picturesque ideas of nobility. And because people really love to eat pineapple and race ducks. Um, <laughs> I think these details the, are the, probably the most important part of the favorite. The duck racing early on was very fun. And, and again, it's another moment that gives you an idea of the kind of film that you're walking into. <laughs> yeah. I, I remember a, a while ago, back on episode 7 of our podcast, we talked about Barry Lyndon. And you made lots of yeah. comparisons with Barry Lyndon to this film. And I see that, especially in terms of the comedic approach that you have there. And it's very, you know, a lot more lighthearted and humorous approach in the material there. And again, it grounds it in a more human feeling than we usually see from these grandiose period dramas. I think so, too. And I think it does have the same sense of deterministic qualities that Kubrick often has. It's very wide lens and it looks kind of like a Kubrick movie oftentimes, especially like out of the grass and around the castle. Wouldn't you say it has more of like a Kubrick lens? Yeah, again, I, the, especially in, you can also make the obvious comparison with the more lateral, na natural lighting of the candles throughout. That's an obvious, you know, pull from Barry Lyndon as well. Uh, you know, while it doesn't have like the intense zooms of Barry Lyndon, it definitely does have the wide, all encompassing, you know, lensing that goes on almost to a, uh, you know, a negative degree, I would, I would argue, in some instances, because the film is practically shot entirely with wide-angle lenses, even in the very quick pans and moments that end up kind of distorting the image so sometimes. And obviously, you yeah. have the, the very overt distortion of the, the fisheye lenses that are very prominent throughout, but those <laughs> those are definitely feel more intentional than, like, the, the distortion you get when you move the camera with a wide-angle lens like that. For sure, half the time it looks like a Beastie Boys music video. Yeah, it's and it, it does feel a little uh, detached at times because of that, or you know, at least in some moments, the wide-angle lens did end up being distracting to me for a few moments. But overall, I you know appreciated the intent of you know the the lensing there throughout. I think I, it's one I really appreciated having seen in theaters. I'm glad that I got that experience of it. Just because of the difference in the approach and presentation. Right. Uh, it, it was definitely a, a beautiful film throughout, not only, again, in the, the cinematography and lighting choices, but especially when it came down to the costume design and, you know, the set decoration and everything there. It was, you know, it felt very authentic. 
I feel like Yorgos Lanthimos has such a strong visual identity as well. I I don't know. I, I'm sure you've already caught on to like some of it in this one, but uh, I'm really appreciating his filmography. Yeah, uh, I know one thing people have kind of hooked on with him is that he is a particular threat of uh, animal allegories in films. Yeah, right. Uh, obviously, like, uh, we have a big big factor with the lobster and uh, you know I know dog tooth as well as something going on, and then killing of a sacred deer. Clearly, and then yeah. this film has a very prevalent usage of uh, rabbits throughout. Rabbits are a very common <laughs> right. element in the film. I mean, like, the 16 rabbits represent her children. children that were, you know, like, stillborn or they died after birth. Or, you know, there were all these problems, and uh, it reminds you how gritty it actually was for women, even of nobility, that they couldn't have a uh, safe birth. Well, well and, I mean, uh, I think the inbreeding has something to do with that as well. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um there are a lot of problems that lead to that. And uh, in The Lobster, of course, it's about... Uh, it has Rachel Weisz and uh, um, Coleman in it, and it's about uh, kind of people being reincarnated in, as uh, animals and seeing if they fall in love in the woods, right? Um, I don't remember exactly how that film's logic worked, but uh, I I think they have to find a, a partner or they're transformed into the animal they must become. So that, that was... it's very interesting to me that our children would become rabbits. Yeah, so I guess there's a thread of uh, continuation there, you know, in spirit at least with the, the rabbits or the factor there. Uh, and that's, you know, of course, an interesting element of emotional, you know, connection there that you have. Uh, that's the, like the original spark of connection between mm. Stone's character and Livy Coleman. Uh, which leads to the the major romantic element of the film, which is, uh, I think, a surprise for people who aren't aware of that kind of going in, that um, um, the, the lesbian angle of the romances. I mean, the, the three old women sitting behind me in the theater were very surprised <laughs> at the ending, at least. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's... Again, one of those daring, you know, and uh, bold things, I think, to depict in something like this, and, uh, and unexpected. And again, it shows that you're discarding the more conservative approaches and, yeah. you know, uh, to these kind of period dramas and the, that idea that they usually reflect, you know, when people romanticize those, uh, the, the, the older periods. And I think that's a, an important aspect here. And, it, you know, the film is not afraid to be bold about that. And it, and it makes the, the character... Uh, battle the the kind of you know menage a trois there if you will yeah <laughs> i think it's so hard to elicit such a strong emotional reaction when you're dealing in costume drama in these um, right you know these big frothy costumes and then suddenly i hear like gas throughout the theater as old women are you know uh, everyone's having a conversation after like it it leaves you with something to discuss and as it fades to like all the bunnies and uh from their of course, it's like implying that she's, um, you know, giving oral and that she's grabbing her head. Like I mean, they, this, they but, explicitly uh, mention it at one point. Like Olivia Coleman has yeah. a line, looks something that's like, you know, I like her tongue inside of me or something like that. <laughs> and again, it's, yeah, the film is not afraid to be crass, and that's what I love about it. I know. I I think it's beautiful, like in its language, and that um, it allows someone to talk that way. I think when we think of Queen Anne, we. We think of someone that we couldn't talk to. Like, it makes them approachable and real. And, right. Uh, it makes them human characters to me. Right, and that's the big thing, like I said, in the language there and the regard for the characters and the strong, you know, uh, foundation of, you know, emotional 
relationships between all three of the characters and that battle that they all have for affection that's what makes mm-hmm. the the period elements work you know more in favor there is that you're creating a grounded element whereas other period dramas that tend to you know distance you know or detach from people are because you can't relate to the characters and their problems and you know the the fanciful lives that they lead if you're not buying into the escapist kind of fantasy nature of that then you don't have anything to grab onto whereas the favorite and films like that you know provide a more human element that you yeah, know. she she grabs onto her head. <laughs> but no, I think it's and again, all three performances from you know the the lead actresses there are absolutely wonderful, and you buy them a hundred percent of the time. Uh, I don't know if I would have a particular favorite, but yeah, a favorite of the favorites. Do you have one? Um, my favorite of the favorite has to be Coleman. I mean, I think she's just so exceptional. I think it's so brave to put on that weight and. Uh, I'm very fond of Emma Stone more each time I watch it, but uh, and, and Rachel Weisz too. How can yeah, you pick it's one? It's hard to pick one because they're all so great and they're so committed to their performances uh, throughout. Uh, absolutely I love, convincing. I love when it first came out. Everyone was like, "Rachel Weisz has the best big dick energy." Yeah, <laughs> I thought she, I thought it's so true. Like she puts the wrap on her face and somehow becomes more beautiful. Oh yeah, it's when you've got the, the makeshift like blindfold thing you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Or she yeah. becomes like a, she, a, a even more of a badass at that point, you know, in the film cuz it becomes like a Rambo handkerchief or something. Like now she's down to action. She's going to fuck shit up in here. It's an and it's an intense moment preceding it where she gets all roughed up by being dragged by the horse after being drugged by <laughs> yeah. by Emma Stone. And you know, I mean a lot of movies like Phantom Thread of course would just stop at like the poisoning. Okay, that's your climax. That's your end of your movie. Here it's like the start of a climax. Mhm. I guess that's another good comparison as well. We can throw Phantom Thread in the pile here of uh, kind of more aristocratic, uh, you know, period dramas. Yeah. They kind of go with everything here. This one I definitely like more than Phantom Thread, I remember. But though I know that's a favorite um, of yours. Uh, as high as I am on it, I'm starting to lean more toward the favorite just because it is so different. This segment canceled by the coronavirus. <laughs> uh, no, I, I'm going to delete all this and just go with my idea of just having a little musical break there. Mm-hmm. 